I must say that the first time I heard of this view, I thought it sounded like some insane plot out of a science fiction movie or something. But as I started to look more at ancient history, the more this view seemed to make sense. Hello and welcome to the Millennial Apologist Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan. And in this episode, we are going to discuss a passage in the Bible that sounds very strange to modern ears. And that passage is Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. Now, if the passage itself seems bizarre, I assure you that the interpretation of this passage, which I will be promoting, is even more bizarre. After reading the passage, we will look at the two popular interpretations of it and examine the evidence for each position. After determining the interpretation which is best supported by the Bible, we will then look at ancient writings from outside the Bible which further support this interpretation. Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 read as follows. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. One explanation of this passage is that the sons of God here are the righteous offspring of Seth, while the daughters of men are the unrighteous offspring of Cain. The other explanation of this passage is that the sons of God here are fallen angels who left the heavenly realm to marry human females, which resulted in giant angel-human hybrids as offspring. Concerning the first interpretation, sometimes referred to as the Sethite view, it is assumed that because Cain committed evil by murdering his brother Abel, his female offspring are labeled the daughters of men, and that the male offspring of Seth are labeled the sons of God. And recall that Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, Cain murdered Abel, so then Seth was their other son after Abel died. And of course, God curses Cain, um, so it's thought that his offspring by default would also be cursed, and they're referred to as the daughters of men, and that's why the offspring of Seth are referred to as the sons of God. Support for this view may be seen in that chapter 4 provides Cain's lineage, while chapter 5 provides Seth's lineage. The fact that these two genealogies are distinguished from each other right before Genesis 6 convinces some people that the sons of God do refer to the righteous male offspring of Seth, and the daughters of men refer to the unrighteous female offspring of Cain. Proponents of this view also point out that because the phrase sons of God refers to Christians in the New Testament, it seems clear here that the sons of God are simply believers from the line of Seth who ended up marrying unbelievers from the line of Cain. However, a major problem with this view is that it gives no explanation as to why the offspring were giants. 
There is no evidence from the Bible or from science that if a Christian and an unbeliever get married, they will produce giant offspring. What's really interesting is that the Hebrew word translated as giants is Nephilim, which is generally thought by interpreters to literally mean the fallen ones. It should also be noted that Genesis 6 states that there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. Because this passage occurs right before the flood of Noah, it is appropriate to interpret the meaning of the statement that giants were in the earth in those days and also after that as meaning that the same situation happened after the flood. And this is exactly what the Bible supports, because approximately 1,000 years after the flood, the book of Numbers records the Israelites as running into the Nephilim in the land of Canaan. Because the entire human race was reduced to Noah's family during the flood, any distinction between Seth's offspring and Cain's offspring was eliminated. Another problem with this view is that if the offspring of Seth are the sons of God, why did God destroy them all, except for Noah and his family, during the flood? Because of the lack of textual support, as well as the problems with this view, I believe that the correct interpretation of Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 is that the sons of God are angelic beings who left their heavenly realm to mate with human females. Though this interpretation likely sounds bizarre to those of us who have grown up in the West and have had our worldview shaped by secular presuppositions, I believe that this is the position most supported by both the Bible and by cultural evidence. While it is true that the sons of God refer to Christians in the New Testament, when this term is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to angels. The exact phrase, sons of God, only appears five times in the Old Testament. Two of those five occurrences are in Genesis 6, while the other three are in the book of Job. In every occurrence in the book of Job, the phrase sons of God is explicitly referring to angelic beings. This can be seen in Job 1.6, which states that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. Job 2 verse 1, which states that again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And in Job 38 verses 4 to 7, when God asks Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. We see from these passages that not only were these angelic beings present when God laid the foundation of the earth, but it also appears that God chooses to include these beings as part of a divine council. And this can also be seen in Psalm 82 verse 1 and 1 Kings 22 verses 19 to 22. The fact that the phrase sons of God in the Old Testament always refers to angelic beings is very compelling that Genesis 6 is saying that fallen angels came down to earth and reproduced with human females. However, we also have the New Testament passages 
of 2 Peter 2 verses 4 to 5 and Jude 6. 2 Peter 2 verses 4 to 5 state that God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Peter states here that some angels sinned and were therefore punished by God, and he also connects this event with the flood of Noah, which occurs directly after our strange Bible passage in Genesis 6. Likewise, Jude states in verse 6 that the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, God has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. If you read Jude side by side with 2 Peter 2, it's clear that Jude and Peter are talking about the same event here. Peter tells us that these angels during the time of Noah sinned, while Jude tells us that the specific sin these angels committed was leaving their first estate, which is the realm where God intended them to exist in. This lines up perfectly with interpreting the sons of God in Genesis 6 to be fallen angels, because Jude and Peter strongly imply here that during the time of Noah, angels left their original heavenly realm so that they could marry human females due to their beauty. Not only is this position better supported by the Bible, but it also provides an adequate explanation as to why the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men are described as giants or Nephilim, because an angel-human hybrid would likely have some very unique characteristics. As noted earlier, Genesis 6-4 specifies that there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them. Genesis 6-4 appears to say that there were also Nephilim after the flood, and that's exactly what we see in the Bible. The word Nephilim is only mentioned in one other passage, which is Numbers 13-33. Numbers 13 states that Moses sent out Israelite scouts to go look at the land of Canaan before the Israelites went there to make war with the people. When the scouts returned, verses 28 to 33 record them as saying that, The cities are walled and very great, and moreover we saw the children of Anak there. The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eats up its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Again, the word translated as giants here is Nephilim. We also know that there were giants in the promised land due to the famous story of David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17 verse 4 describes Goliath's height as six cubits and a span, which equals approximately nine feet and nine inches. Furthermore, the Bible mentions a gigantic king named Og. Deuteronomy 3.11 
states that only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Nine cubits was the length of it, and four cubits the breadth of it, after the cubit of a man. This means that Og's bed frame was thirteen and a half feet long and six feet wide. A bed that big must have been made for a very large man. Now, typically, there is only one biblical argument used against this interpretation, and that is to cite Jesus' statement in Matthew 22.30 and Mark 12.25, that in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. The purpose of Jesus' statement here is to tell us that when Christians are resurrected in their eternal bodies and are in heaven, there will be no marriages and therefore no sex, because we will be as the angels in heaven. Some people claim that because Jesus said angels do not marry, this means that the sons of God in Genesis 6 cannot be angels because they ended up marrying human females. However, I think this argument is extremely easy to disprove because those who use it tend to add or subtract from what the text actually says here. First, Jesus said that the angels in heaven do not marry. From reading Genesis 6, 2 Peter 2, and Jude 6, we see that these angels left heaven and came to earth in order to reproduce with human females, so the angels were no longer in heaven when they did this. Second, every angel mentioned in the Bible appears to be male. The angel that wrestled with Jacob in Genesis 32:24, the two angels that went to Sodom in Genesis 19:1, the angels that visited Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18:2, the angel that visited Samson's mother in Judges 13:6, and the angel that rolled away the stone of Jesus' tomb in Matthew 28:3 are all described in the masculine. Furthermore, there are never any feminine names or descriptions attributed to angelic beings. The devil is referred to as a he in Luke 4. Likewise, the only good angels named in the Bible are Gabriel and Michael, which are clearly masculine names. When Jesus said that angels in heaven don't marry, he never says why they don't marry, And he also never says that angels can never marry. Perhaps angels don't marry each other because they are all male. One of the primary reasons of marriage is to procreate. And because angels do not need to procreate like humans do, as implied in Job 38.7, it would make sense that God made all of the angels in male form because they have no need for marriage. This would make sense, then, why some sinful angels would enter the earthly realm to marry human females because they were so overtaken with their beauty and could not satisfy their lusts with other angels, seeing as every angel appears to be male. So, to summarize why I take the position that the sons of God in Genesis 6 are fallen angels and not the line of Seth, I think the fact that the Old Testament always uses the phrase sons of God to refer to angelic beings is very compelling that the text is talking about angels here. Furthermore, it appears that the New Testament authors Peter and Jude held this position as well. 
And again, it also provides a sufficient reason as to why the offspring of these sons of God with the daughters of men would be giants and would be referred to as the Nephilim. So, I do not see any problems with this interpretation within the biblical narrative, but rather much support for it. On the other hand, interpreting the sons of God as being the offspring of Seth, or simply righteous men, simply lacks support from the text. Furthermore, it fails to explain why the offspring were giants, it ignores who the sons of God are everywhere else in the Old Testament, and it is unable to answer how the Nephilim existed after the flood in Numbers 13.33. With all of that said, we will now look at some other ancient literature which discusses this topic. Before getting into this other literature, I want to make it clear that these writings are not inspired by God at all and therefore have no doctrinal authority whatsoever. However, these writings do show that the view of Genesis 6, which I have just promoted, did exist thousands of years ago and was held by ancient people who were familiar with the Bible. So it's not like this is some fringe view that just popped into existence recently. While the Bible itself provides sufficient evidence that Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 are describing angelic beings leaving the heavenly realm to marry human females and that this union resulted in giant hybrid offspring known as Nephilim, it's also interesting to look at ancient Jewish literature from outside the Bible. The first piece of ancient literature we'll look at is the Book of Enoch. What's really interesting is that the New Testament book of Jude actually quotes from the book of Enoch. Verses 14 to 15 of Jude say that Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. If you pick up 1 Enoch chapter 1, verse 9, it is clear that Jude is indeed providing a direct quotation from this book. However, it must be stated that the book of Enoch is not inspired by God. If it was inspired by God, then God would have ensured its inclusion in the Bible. Just because a biblical author quotes an outside source, that does not mean that the source they quoted should be regarded as inspired by God. This can most clearly be seen in that Paul appears to quote pagan authors three times in the New Testament. For example, Paul says in Titus 1.12 that one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. The prophet of their own that Paul is referring to is generally accepted to be an ancient figure by the name of Epimenides. Biblical scholar Philip Towner notes in the New International Commentary on the New Testament that the association of Epimenides with Crete is sound, as is his reputation as a priest and prophet. He can be dated to the 5th or 6th century BCE. The Christian era writers Clement of Alexandria and Jerome linked the saying to him. And Paul also appears to quote from two other heathen writers, 
those being Aratus in Acts 17.28 and possibly Menander in 1 Corinthians 15.33. It's important to bring this up because all of this demonstrates that extra-biblical sources which are mentioned in the Bible, like the Book of Enoch, are not inspired by God. The only writings inspired by God are those in the Bible. Furthermore, even though Enoch lived over 3,000 years before Jesus, it is widely accepted that the Book of Enoch was composed during the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC. However, because Jude specifically attributes his quotation to Enoch, the seventh from Adam, it appears that some legitimate sayings of Enoch were preserved, whether by oral tradition or by writing, and that these sayings were included in the book of Enoch. However, it is clear that the book of Enoch does contain many falsehoods and therefore cannot be inspired by God. For example, Enoch describes the Nephilim as being hundreds of feet tall, which is clearly ridiculous. The giants in the Bible appear to be around 9 or 10 feet tall, which is completely reasonable, seeing as multiple men in just the last hundred years have been recorded as being over 8 feet tall. Regardless, the book of Enoch is valuable because it lets us see some of the beliefs that were present among the ancient Israelites. The following passages from the book of 1st Enoch can be found in chapters 6 and 9, and state, It came to pass, when the children of men had multiplied, that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of the heaven, saw and lusted after them, and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men, and beget us children. And they were in all two hundred, who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon, because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. Chapter 9 of First Enoch then states that good angels by the names of Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel tell God that these fallen angels have taught all unrighteousness on earth, and revealed the eternal secrets which were preserved in heaven, which men were striving to learn. And they have gone to the daughters of men upon the earth, and have slept with the women, and have defiled themselves, and revealed to them all kinds of sins. And the women have borne giants, and the whole earth has thereby been filled with blood and unrighteousness. And if you look up these passages yourself and read them in depth, you'll see that the author of Enoch actually gives the names of the angels that fell from heaven. Also, you may have noticed that this text mentions the angels Michael and Gabriel, which are mentioned in the Bible. So, even though the book of Enoch is not inspired by God, and it does contain errors, it does show how some ancient people interpreted Genesis 6. And again, this was a book that was quoted in Jude, and Jude is the same author that discusses these angels that left their proper dwelling place. So it's no coincidence that Jude is quoting this text, and he is one of the New Testament authors which provides support for interpreting the sons of God in Genesis 6 as being angels. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus, who lived during the first century AD, 
also supports this view. In chapter 3 of his work titled Antiquity of the Jews, Josephus discusses the events surrounding the flood of Noah, and he states that many angels of God accompanied with women and begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good on account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is that these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians call giants. So, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus seemed to have held this interpretation of Genesis 6 as well. There were also early church members who held this position. For example, Justin Martyr, who lived from the year 100 to 165 AD, said in chapter 5 of his work titled The Second Apology that the angels transgressed and were captivated by love of women and begot children who are those that are called demons. And besides, they afterwards subdued the human race to themselves, partly by magical writings and partly by fears and the punishments they occasioned. There's also Irenaeus, who lived from 130 to 202 AD, and he said in his work titled The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching that God raised up another son to Adam instead of Abel who was slain. And for a very long while, wickedness extended and spread and reached and laid hold upon the whole race of mankind until a very small seed of righteousness remained among them and illicit unions took place upon the earth since angels were united with the daughters of the race of mankind and they bore to them sons who for their exceeding greatness were called giants until judgment came upon the world from god by means of a flood in the tenth generation from the first formed man noah alone being found righteous and other early church members who held this view include tertullian ambrose of milan clement of rome and more and again I just want to emphasize that the Bible is our ultimate authority on truth, and the reason I promote this view of Genesis 6 is because that's what I think the overwhelming biblical evidence points to. I'm not citing these extra-biblical ancient authors as if they have some sort of special authority, but rather, I include them in this dialogue to demonstrate that this was a belief held by some ancient people who were familiar with Genesis 6. I'd also like to point out that some people think the Nephilim are the main reason why God flooded the earth in the days of Noah, and are the main reason why God commanded the Israelites to slaughter entire nations when they arrived in the Promised Land. The argument is that because there was a genetic problem caused by these fallen angels, God chose to wipe them all out to cleanse the human race. Proponents of this view note that when Genesis 6-9 states that Noah was perfect in his generations, this means that his lineage was perfectly human and had not been tainted at all by this fallen angel DNA. Proponents of this view also state that because God specifically said in Genesis 3-15 that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan, that Satan intentionally convinced other angels to reproduce with human females in order to corrupt the DNA 
of the human race and therefore interfere with the birth of the Messiah. While this view may have some good points, the Bible appears to state in Genesis 6-5 that the deciding factor for God choosing to destroy people with the flood was the evilness of man. Likewise, Genesis 15-16 implies that God had the Israelites destroy the nations in the promised land because their iniquity was so great. Though Numbers 13.33 does say that there were Nephilim in the promised land, I think it is a bit of a stretch to assume that every single individual living in the promised land had corrupted DNA. However, the arguments for this position have convinced some people that the Nephilim offer an explanation as to why God sanctioned such wide-scale violence in the Old Testament. In episode 9 of this podcast, titled, Does God Ever Reject People? Reprobation and Old Testament Genocide, I provide another possible explanation as to why God sanctioned such violence in the Old Testament, which is that the people who were living in these places had become so evil and hardened to the truth of God that they reached a state of no return, and because they would inevitably end up in hell, there is no perceived injustice of them being destroyed because they would never have accepted the gospel and gotten saved anyways. It must be noted, though, that because God is the creator of all things, including life itself, he can end any human's life however he wants to, and we are in no place to judge God. So, whatever the ultimate reasons were that God chose to destroy such large groups of people in the Old Testament, as God, he is perfectly just in his actions, and it is foolish of us to question him. People die every day, and God takes people out however he wants, because he is God and we are not, so we are in no position to question God. And that's all we have time for in this episode. Before closing, I must say that the first time I heard of this view, I thought it sounded like some insane plot out of a science fiction movie or something. But as I started to look more at ancient history, the more this view seemed to make sense. The abundance of unexplained structures that are thousands of years old, such as Stonehenge and Newgrange, stories of gods mating with humans and producing hybrid offspring, as found in Greek and Egyptian mythology, ancient man's fascination with the heavens, and some of the genius of ancient man are all elements that suddenly gain clarity if viewed at with the Nephilim in mind. It's interesting to watch the TV show Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, because that show will often bring up puzzling discoveries of ancient history. Because the people on that show generally do not believe the Bible is inspired by God, they try to explain all of these ancient mysteries by invoking aliens. With the Bible in mind, I think the fallen angel's view of Genesis 6 is the correct explanation for why there are so many unexplained mysteries of the past. And I will devote a full episode to evidence for the fallen angels and the Nephilim, which can be found in ancient cultures across the globe, but we will have to end this episode here. So I hope this episode has sparked your interest on this subject and that you do some of your own research on the Nephilim. Just be careful to use your discernment and to challenge the information you come in contact with. Thank you all for listening and have a great day. Bye.